Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Solar Punk. We're really excited to have the Gotenna team with us today. Eric Schuler and Andrea Garrity are the CEO and the Chief Growth Officer of Gotenna, a startup that designs and develops technologies for off-grid and decentralized communications. Prior to Gotenna, Eric had a decade of experience working in the government across the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And Andrea worked at Incutel as a Vice President of Intelligence Community Support. Ari and Andrea, welcome to the SolarPunk podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Awesome to be here. Thanks so much for having us. So to kick things off, why don't you two take a step back and tell us a little bit about Gotenna and the founding story behind it. What are your two roles? How did you two come into uh, the positions right now? Absolutely. So I'm currently Gotenna's chief growth officer, and I've been here for just about 13 months. Um, but I was previously at Incutel. Um, Incutel is a nonprofit that's pre-funded by the government. They act as a technology scout and a strategic investor for parts of the intelligence community, Homeland Security, some parts of DoD, et cetera. So I was really lucky to to be able to track a lot of different, really interesting, innovative startups, and Gotenna was one of them. And what I find most interesting about Gotenna was it, it was founded by a brother and sister after Hurricane Sandy, when they kind of lived near each other in the New York metro area, but weren't able to contact one another to check in to make sure that they were okay after the hurricane, right? It turns out that there was you know something like 50% of cellular infrastructure was down, um, and even though they were close, they couldn't check in. So the company actually started on the premise of keeping friends and family safe and connected in the event of a disaster um, or some sort of emergency. Over time, when we talk about you know dual use capabilities, they realized that just as the just as you know hikers off grid um, or people at concerts who don't have a cellular signal or access to Wi-Fi need to stay connected, so do kind of you know mission operators, right? People in the field in austere environments or people who are running operations where they intentionally you know don't want to be communicating on a cellular network or Wi-Fi. And so, you know, the off-grid kind of decentralized nature, nature of Gotenna's mesh radios is really kind of what brought the company to where we are today, 10 years later. My experience with the company is I worked with Andrea in her role at Incutel when I was at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and we were responsible for scouting out technologies that could make our operators safer. And it was very, very clear from the start with Gotenna that the technology was something special. What it was doing in terms of a very, very low C-swap cost, size, weight, and power for your listeners who are, are not mega nerds like we are, um, and the ability to connect everyone up in a mesh radio at significant ranges. You know, Back then, it was an earlier product, but you were still seeing eight miles plus of connectivity. It was clear this was something that would change the mission. And that was why when I was approached by our board and our, our founder, Daniela, uh, to take this role over as the company pivoted, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a bit, uh, it was a no-brainer to me because you don't see technology like this very often. And I knew that we had a team that could make sure we got this out into the world and kept all operators, whether military, public safety, law enforcement, safer in their missions. So before we dive into kind of the, the story and the pivot in that process, 
Um, Andrea, you kind of hinted a little bit at kind of the, the capabilities and what this enables. But when you describe the company today, like, what would you describe as like the key change that the company allows for? Like what, without Gotenna, what can we not do that we can now do today? Absolutely. So we're able to stay connected and have situational awareness of teams or groups in an off-grid austere environment. So it seems really basic. I think from the idea that, you know, we're all used to being connected on our cell phones. We, you know, talk by sending pictures oftentimes, right? Where, um, you know, easily communicating via text and we expect to be able to pick up our device and see where, you know, where our people are. Well, our operators are in the same, you know, the same boat. They need the same sort of technology, but that's not always available to them. If you're working along the border, there oftentimes is not cellular service. If you're, you know, running a special operation in another country, you're not going to just want to like get on that country's cellular network. So the ability to, you know, have a radio that pairs with your cell phone and kind of gives you that situational awareness so that, you know, through either the Gotenna app or through ATAC, which is the Android tactical awareness kit, um, where you're able to kind of see where your people are on your phone and then be able to chat with them via text. It kind of creates a capability that didn't exist previously for those sorts of operators. And it builds on top of an increasing uh, trend that we see in dual use of it's a COTS product, right? It's not something that was built on top of a cost plus enterprise in the DOD, you know, laden with a lot of features that that not everyone necessarily needs. Um, and so we're able to capture that sweet spot of something that's very, very affordable and scalable. It's the rare radio that actually serves many, many markets instead of having, you know, 24 different product lines that are slightly fine-tuned, you know, even if it's only the color of the radio uh, to a mission. Uh, and that's what's so important in that it allows us to provide a lot of capability, but at a price that is fair to the taxpayer, which in striking that sweet spot is, as someone who works in government, not always the easiest. So Ari, you just mentioned um, dual use, and Andre, in your description, it sounded very government-focused, especially, frankly, both of you come from, uh, I would say, government-focused backgrounds. So tell me a little bit about when we say dual use, what does the commercial side of this look like? And maybe that leads a little bit into the pivot of the company and where things started and where they are now. Yeah, definitely. So it's interesting because the company has, has gone through a bit of a, a winding pivot. You know, it started as a consumer-based technology, then pivoted into a, a government focus. And we are primarily government focused at this point. But when you look at a lot of the missions we support right now, there are analogous uh, enterprise use cases, right? Whether it's private security or IoT for moving data along different sensors, that's something that you can support with our technology. So I'd say right now, you know, we went from, a, you know, I think it was a 90% consumer company to a 95% government company. I think where we'll ultimately land is somewhere around 80% government, 20% private sector, you know, give or take a 10% or 20% here. But I think that the, the key thing there is having the overlap of the missions where maybe the procurement cycles are different and we could do a whole podcast. Maybe we'll do some of that uh, of what government procurement is like, but fundamentally the products are the same. So you're getting, you know, that, that economies of scale I mentioned earlier. And Ari, before Gotenna, you spent a lot of time working in government uh, at DHS and uh, a couple of other places in government. What are the main takeaways from that experience for you now, now that you're in the role of a, of a CEO of a startup? Yeah, uh, so many to, to talk about. Um, I think, and then I definitely want Andrea to weigh in because I think she has done a lot more of this than even I have. 
it is that everyone has a day job. And I think a lot of times the translation of the day jobs clashes. And you see that a lot in startup culture versus government culture. And it's not that anyone necessarily is trying to do anything wrong. It's just that they're starting from such different perspectives that it's like, you know, someone speaking Martian and someone is speaking English. Like, and it's just, they don't think. But I will say, and this is something I'd say to your listeners, particularly startups who want to work with the government, if you enter into your government procurement uh, experience, whatever that is, and you are focusing on how messed up it is or how hard it is or how complex it is, you've already lost the battle. Um, you know, my old boss, my mentor, Kevin McAleenan, uh, you know, who ran CBP when I was there and was acting secretary of DHS, he always said, pass the test, don't fight the test. And so I see a lot of startups get stuck on this. And they're right. Like, just to be really clear, there's a lot in the procurement system that could be revamped. But if you sit around saying it's unfair, it's hard, it's whatever, DOD pushes out $800, $900 billion a year, right? Like, Someone's getting that money. If you can't figure out how, that's a you problem. It's not a startup problem. Um, but I, I think Andrea probably has some more nuanced and uh, uh, helpful things than, than my little riff there. Well, I think your riff is spot on, though, right? I mean, I always make this joke that, you know, I, I do it talking about the different government agencies, but I think it's true of companies, which is, you know, everybody is dysfunctional. Every agency has its own dysfunction. Every company has its own dysfunction, but it's kind of like family dysfunction, right? Your family dysfunction makes total sense to you. Even if from the outside, people are like, that's crazy. So sometimes for me, it's like finding the dysfunction that makes sense to me where I'm like, oh, I totally get this and I can navigate this and I know how to work with this group because their dysfunction is mine. Um, and so I would say for startups, it's about like finding where there's that match, where there's a good push and pull and a good balance and then focusing there. But I think kind of, you know, the more important thing in working with the government and with startups, and again, I, I think these are lessons that are true across the board, which is so much is dependent on partnership, right? Like, you know, everybody needs to deliver. If you're the startup, you need to deliver what you've told the government you're going to bring to the table. Be transparent, be a partner, tell them where you need help, right? Be upfront about the limitations. If you go in and you like oversell or you promise all this stuff and then you're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. That doesn't work well. And that shouldn't work well in any sort of business relationship. Um, but also on the government side, and I think sometimes this is where, you know, there's a little bit more struggle. It's how does the government deliver for a company? With startups, right, we need to see some sort of progress, some sort of revenue faster than what the government is used to delivering. So there are some really good, strong government groups out there that recognize that. And they have found ways to quickly, you know, do contracts, even if they're small, just to show, you know, the company that they're engaged, that they're moving things forward so that the company can, can tell the board that, you know, I think that the government is traditionally used to working with some pretty large um, corporations. And so, you know, they're not used to kind of needing to deliver in that way. But I would say I've seen that mindset shift over the past couple of years, which is really positive. Oh, it's a good job. But I'd say an anecdote of that, and I really uh, huge kudos to the AFWorks team and what they've done. You know, when I was doing this early in my career in the aughts, we got our first phase two and we were really excited. We were a rare venture backed startup in, in the aughts, as I mentioned. Uh, and so, like, I'm all excited. I booked, you know, three quarters of a million dollars. That was a lot of money in the 2000s. Um, and then, like, and you have to do a DCAA audit. And it was like, you know, this six, nine month nightmare. Now I went through, you know, my first time now that I'm back in the private sector again, you know, 10, 15 years later, we get an AFWorks phase two and they do a contracting sprint and you're you're on contract in 45 days. It's amazing, right? Like to Andrea's point, like that is 
you know, light speed from where we were 15 years ago, which sounds less good when I say it that way. But I think it does show that there's a path forward, right? Again, back to you can do a lot of good things under the contracting procurement system that's in place, but you have to want to do it. And I think AFWorks is a great example, and there's others uh, that wants to do it. Amazing. And what would you say um, were the biggest shocks for you when you started working for the government? Uh, and what, what are the biggest opportunities for improvement? So Ari, you, you just mentioned how AFWorks uh, massively improved the, the, the procurement process there. I'm curious, you know, what, what are the other areas uh, that, that you think have, still have the biggest gaps? So okay, so let's see. I, I don't even know if I, I have I can say what my biggest shocks were because I think I'm numb at this point. And and a lot of like Andrea said, you when you, it becomes your family's dysfunction, you just accept it as the status quo. Um, you know, a shock I'll actually say returning in the private sector was a lot of the things you think are governmental are are just the human condition, right? There's always personalities, there's always sort of these cultures. You know, I think the government does have certain minutiae. Like the thing I think about that most horrifies me going back, and this will sound so petty, but it's also indicative. Like I imagine having to do the government travel system and it just like literally makes me cringe, right? But that's a silly thing because that really doesn't matter at the end of the day uh, in a lot of ways. Um, to the point of improvement, you know, this is something I think transcends... Uh, and I, I say this to a lot of people, it, it transcends politics, transcends, you know, emissions most important. It's that people who have strong will are out to do the right thing. You know, leaders like McAleen and leaders like Will Roper, different people, you know, my first boss, Tara O'Toole uh, in, in the uh uh, Obama administration, people who wanted to make change could make change. They did not let, you know, procurement hold them back. They did not let the government HR system hold them back, right? I think some of these things are viewed as uh, too hard, but they're not. I think that's an excuse. Yes, it's harder, but it's hard to be in a publicly traded company, right? You can look at the economy right now. People beat their quarters and, you know, they still get their stock prices creamed because everyone's just negative, right? Like every different business place you go from is going to have pros and cons. The government has a lot of inertia. But as long as you're operating legally, you nothing bad can happen to you. I mean, so what they fire you, you can get fired in any job, right? Like, and so when you have that freedom to execute and to change things, and you've seen some really big wins, I think, over the past couple of decades, it comes down to force of will. And I think that's a powerful thing, right? And so I think the question, if you're trying to change government, uh, you know, no matter if you're a Democrat, Republican, whatever, who are your people who are going to be your force of will people who are going to make the nation more prosperous and safer, right? Those are the people you need to deploy and get them doing great things rather than saying, oh, the government's so broken. How do we fix it all? You're not going to fix it all. Focus on what you can fix. And I think maybe there's an empowerment piece there, which is, you know, the agencies looking or, you know, leadership at agencies looking to empower kind of the right people and the people who are going to get things done. Because especially, you know, I've had a lot of conversations over the years, and I'm sure people are tired of hearing me say it, but when we talk about innovation and innovation in the government, or really anywhere, I think a lot of it is personality driven, um, right? It's the people who are just willing to kind of work hard and outwork everybody else to get things done. Um, it's the people who are willing to kind of, you know, I mean, I can't, I want to say like run through walls. I mean, and this is something that I like completely respect about Ari. Like he will run into a wall a hundred times until it breaks, if that's the only way to get something done. And, you know, sometimes you're looking at it and you're thinking everybody else would give up, but he's just going to kind of keep going at it. Andrea again, neglects that she's the one usually telling me to run at the wall harder. She's like the hundred and first time it will break. I promise you. I just, I hand you tools. I say, Hey, try this shovel. That might help you go. Like right? now my forehead's better. I'm just going to stick with it. <laughs> 
But I do think like innovation is personality driven and it, it also can't be one person, right? It can't be to, you know, going back to this analogy, it can't be Ari running against the wall. I mean, he might take the most hits, but, you know, we've got to pass some tools and we've got to have other people who take their turn. And so, you know, the most interesting thing for me that that I took away kind of from my time at Incutel working with the different agencies is that for innovation to be successful, there's a couple of things that you need. One is kind of an executive who's in charge who wants to see it get done. Because, you know, again, force of, you know, human nature, we all focus on things that are our priorities and our boss's priorities and family priorities, right? So, you know, when an executive makes it a priority and consistently checks in and lets the organization know that this is important, like that kind of clears the path for innovation to start. But you also need access to end users. Ari mentioned earlier, you know, this idea that we kind of tend to create these exquisite systems that are, you know, slightly differentiated for each customer. And, you know, it takes us eight years to get the capability out to the field. Uh, And then by the way, by the time it gets out there, the end user goes, I don't need this. This is like a paperweight, right? So it's like having access to the people who are doing the job, who can give you the feedback to say, this is actually what I need, or this is the gap that I'm, that I'm seeing or the, you know, where I'm not able to deliver. And then making sure that those requirements kind of get back to the you know, the company or headquarters or whoever it might be. And then, um, you know, funding is really important too, right? If you don't have money, you can't do things. And it's not just funding for long-term projects, but again, how do we reward the companies or the groups that are partnering with us? So what about the flip question? Uh, you know, when you transition back to the private sector, were there things that really surprised you that that, that maybe were not top of mind beforehand and, and now uh, you really value? You know, I... I can't say for me that there was. I actually was so excited about the opportunity at this company and and the things that we were doing uh, that I, I was really blown away uh, at how perfect a job it would be. Because to me, having worked in and out of government before, it always felt to me that you had to, if you're a contractor, you're a contractor, right? You can be a partner in the mission, but you're still not a Fed. And there's always that little bit of that um whatever you want to call that. I don't want to say taint, but it's almost like that taint. But I realized uh, the opportunity in, at Gotenna of crafting a company that was viewed as a true partner in the mission. And if you look at what we've done uh, since my time here and the talent we've attracted and, and the way our customers work with us and, and the great things they say about us, you actually can do that, right? And I think, you know, something I say, I, I shouldn't say this on a podcast, but I'm totally going to say it, you know, you the government is actually a fantastic customer because they will only fire you if you're stupid and greedy. Now, first of all, let me be very clear, since this is a podcast, you should never be stupid or greedy when doing business with the government. That's a bad thing. However, if you look at a lot of big contracts that get canceled over the time, if you really boil it down, you look at it and you can say, oh, they got stupid and greedy. And so, to me, as someone who would never be stupid and never be greedy with our customers, like again, I think that's a really amazing opportunity to drive a lot of value for the customer in doing the right thing and seeing it pay off in terms of making people safer every day, which is what we do, uh, and watching the business grow in a responsible way while staying true to that North Star. So I'm actually curious, Ari, you, you say that you know uh, people might uh, comment on you saying that the government is a wonderful customer. Dive into that a little bit. Like, why do you think people have that negative reaction when people say, "Oh, the government's such a wonderful customer"? Yeah. So I think I would go back to what I said earlier: is that 
it's just where people's brains are calibrated at. You know, if you come in as a startup, which is a lot of my background, and you're like, why don't you just buy the thing? Well, because they can't, because there's the FAR and there's procurement, right? So if you kind of get past that and you go, okay, what are the legal ways for you to buy the thing? That to me is maybe it's too many video games growing up. Like there are rules to the game and you just have to understand, like you, you need to figure out the right way to do things and, and help uh, ensure that happens. I also think, you know, there are parts of, of government procurement that maybe could be improved. Um, you know, there are certain things in the services side of the house. And again, that's not something we do where, you know, sometimes you see just these incredible, incredible work products that are very positive, but other times it, you just sort of see this treadmill of, you know, the, the beltway bandits. Right. And so I think that also casts a bit of a shadow. And I think some of that's unfair. Um, but I, I think it does end up people think that the the system is you know rigged or it's broken. Look, everything at some stage, there's always rigged and broken examples. We can cherry pick, you know, crappy anecdotes of B2B, B2C, you know, B2G, whatever. Um, but I think by and large, having a customer who's charged with the public good, even if they're gonna be slow and a pain in the butt at times. I don't know. At the end of the day, they're doing something with the public good. You take an oath when you become a civil servant, like, I don't know, maybe I'm naive. I think that's really pure and special. Andrea, a question for you. So coming from the Incutel side of the house, you've seen a lot of dual-use companies. You've probably helped a lot of dual-use companies. What is the one thing that you feel like most of the companies, not necessarily Gotenna, but all the ones that you've seen throughout your entire career, what do they miss about working with the government, even after they're working with a firm like Incutel? I think what's been really interesting for me to see is how you know companies don't necessarily engage directly with the government or they haven't engaged directly with the government and they just assume that everything that they've read in the news is true and they just buy into a lot of you know disinformation or kind of political information or things that are going on that they just say oh well i can't work with that agency because they support that mission and they're horrible when the reality is like a civics class would tell you that agency is enforcing the law. If you want to change the law, you need to go to Congress. Like, so it's really interesting for me to think about all the like KYC, know your customer software that's out there. And, you know, nobody would ever go talk to Elon Musk and tell him that, you know, gas cars are the way of the future and like why he needs to invest in their, you know, oil and gas company or whatever, right? Because you would know he runs Tesla. This is an electric vehicle company. Hello, right? But yet on the flip side, people will go to the government and tell them that their their mission is wrong or like how they're doing it is wrong without actually really understanding the mission or having the credibility to go in and say, I think this might be wrong, but here's how I think you could do it better. And Aria, what about from your point of view, right? Obviously, coming from the government side, do you share uh, that same feeling that Andrea has or do you have other perspectives on this? No, completely agree. And it's something I think it, why we've always worked together well over the years is, is understanding where those lines are and where you operate. And, and back to that other, you know, to your startups listening, you have to be really careful when you start cherry picking missions because your reputation for it gets around. And, you know, if that's something you want, that's okay. Uh, but understand it may have consequences as well, right? And the government has a very long memory for things like that. And and it's look, it's a fractious time. I get it, right? I've served in you know administrations of both parties, but at the end of the day, when you're selling to an agency, you are supporting their front line, right? And in some cases, the front line is a very dangerous job, especially if you're you know the military, IC, law enforcement world, and public safety as well, of course. Um, you know, if it's others that maybe are less political, that's one thing. But 
if you you are making a a individual safer, they will get home to their family through selling to them. If other things, you know, make it not a customer you want to support, that's fine. But you have to keep that again, that North Star of if you're in this space, you are gonna get someone home to their families that night with your technology. And that is the most important thing. And the Ari, uh, on your previous point about procurement, when you think about governments working with startups, what are the main challenges we need to solve to really improve that relationship? Yeah, so so I think one of the things that gets conflated is money and procurement, um, and you see different you know programs the government has that that sometimes make this even more confusing, right? So you look at the SBIR program, which I think by and large is very very successful in driving innovation. But you know, for those not familiar, Small Business Innovative Research Program, I assume most of your listeners know it, you know, there's a phase one and a phase two where the money comes out of house money. You know, it's basically a set aside from Congress that has to be spent to drive forward generally RD type activities. Then there's a phase three, which is a transition, and that's where an act, a customer actually has to go find their own money, which is much harder. And I think what happens in this program a lot is it solves a lot of the contracting problems. Phase ones and twos come pretty quickly. Phase threes generally can be, you know, quick, they're not protestable which solves another procurement problem. But the customer has to go find money. And just because they're willing to do an SBIR doesn't mean they know they actually have a budget. They might not have any budget. And a lot of startups don't know to ask that in the first place. So I think demystifying that that procurement vehicle plus money is a big part of it. And then you got to have someone who wants to do the work. And there's you know other parts there that are complicated, right? If it's defense or even the intelligence community, they rotate frequently. So just as you're starting to get critical mass on your program, the person who loves you and knows you rolls off to do a new mission. And then you're starting with a new person and the handoff of knowledge may or may not be great. So I think institutionally, and again, I think there's been some good work here with AFWorks. I think DIU does a nice job of this as well. And certainly the CVP innovation team, but I did found them, so I'm very biased um, in trying to pull those three things together and make sure the startup knows what they're getting. Because in this thing, Andrea can expound upon too from her InQtel experience. I think if you just said to a startup, hey, look, we're never going to buy your, your product. Um, we're going to give you a bunch of R&D money. We're going to make your product better for other customers. And if you make it better for your commercial customers too, we don't care. Um, but we're never going to buy your product. If you knew that going in, you would know if that million dollars is worth your time or not. And you might say no to it, or you might say, okay, I better go find a customer at the end of this, or maybe I just divert this to my commercial roadmap. That candid conversation does not happen nearly enough. Are there certain things on the government side that we should change? Like, let's say you were in charge of designing the new procurement program. What would you do differently to solve some of those problems that both of you outlined? So I might take a slightly different approach and I'll let Ari talk about kind of the procurement piece. But one of the things that was shocking to me to some degree, and I've worked with the government now for 20 years, is how many agencies don't have a research and development budget um, and how that line of of funding or that kind of line of budget has been cut down over years or completely taken out of agencies. And I think that that is just um, not sustainable. And I think we have to rethink what research and development means, right? Some of it should be what InQtel is doing, which you know they do an amazing job at, which is that ready soon technology. How do we drive some development where we're delivering something in you know 12 to 18 months that's solving a need you know that we see today? Um, right. It's so it's using, you know, InQtel, AFWorks, DIU, the SBIR program, things like that. But also then like, what are the things that we see that are that are over the horizon that are a little bit further down the path? And how do we fund other kind of ways to drive development for that? Um, and so I think that that's something that if I could wave a magic wand, it would really be looking at, you know, putting more research dollars into the agencies, you know, individually, 
and then kind of deploying them in a way that's maybe different from how we've traditionally done that. And, and I would add, you know, I actually have an answer of what I don't miss in government besides the travel system is, you know, the movement of money between agencies is wildly different, right? So DOD is pretty good about moving money through the MIPR pro- process, um, which is the military interpersonal purchase request, I think, something like that, or interdepartmental purchase request. I forget, forgive me, DOD listeners. So they can move money. So, you know, different agencies can set up big procurement mechanisms, you know, and then everyone can just chip in and do it. DHS, unfortunately, is not very good at that. Um, You know, so if you have a contract at, you know, one agency in DHS, let's say CBP, and then let's say that DHS S&T wants to purchase, it is almost as painful for them to move money than it is for them to just set up their own contract. And that's the sort of government stuff that I think drives everyone insane and does deserve you know, a, a, a good look at. So what I would get rid of is I would allow the free movement of money. I would encourage, you know, the establishment of these ordering mechanisms. And again, DIU has been very, very good about this. A lot of phase threes uh, coming out of AFWorks and other agencies have been good about this, but so that you're not just redoing contract paperwork for contract paperwork's sake, right? Like if there is a singular large ordering mechanism where you get best pricing to the government, why would we not use that so that we can get tech, whether it's software, hardware, whatever, into the hands of the people who need it as fast as possible. And that is all dual within the FAR. It is completely legal. And it just comes down to government has created this bureaucracy of paper moving on money that is defies reason. I mean, at a basic level, it's just driving efficiencies, right? And if a tech has been vetted and bought or contracted through one agency, why shouldn't the other agencies be able to say, okay, that's a seal of approval. You know, I'm going to go access that same technology. And Ari and Andrea, let's say you wake up tomorrow uh, and, you know, one of you uh, is president of the United States. Andrea, I can't be trusted with the nuclear codes. <laughs> what, are, what are the main challenges? And let's keep this within the scope of, you know, startups and, you know, government working with uh, different technologies. What are the main things uh, you think the executive branch could, could help solve uh, in, in, in that field? Well, since I have access to the nuclear codes, apparently, and can be trusted with them, I guess I'll take that first. I think kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier, priorities and focus is really important. I think that there's so much going on right now at at every level of government. I'm not sure the priorities are clear. So I think it would be determining what those priorities are, putting the focus on them, and also putting funding behind it. Um, I think the CHIPS Act was a great example of that. Um, you know, something where we put some focus on it, Congress got it done, we got funding to actually back it. That's really important. So I think it would be looking at things like that and and recreating that and then making sure kind of to what Ari was saying that these were like efficiently set up in ways that actually, you know, empower people to do work against whatever that priority is. Yeah. And I would build on top of that since I'm going to be your vice president, I believe, uh, or at least chief of staff. You know, one of the things when I was in government with the innovation team, the technology was actually not the focus for us because we had so many problems. We had like I, I could I could never run out of problems to solve, right? But where people got frustrated was the bureaucracy, and I realized I was saying how great the customer government was, and I stand by that. But it was the movement of money, it was the procurement, it was the privacy stuff you have to do, the PTAs and PIAs and all that, and then you know the AT, ATOs and ATTs. Don't even get me started on that. That was the hard part, right? And so we consciously made a decision as an organization that we were going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to do the yucky part. Fun part is listening to companies pitch and giving them money and watching them change the world. That's easy. So much brain power in in Silicon Valley and elsewhere and innovation hubs across the nation and the world. 
I would go after those things, right? I would figure out where are the biggest pain points, you know, whether it's those mastering order agreements for technology, whether it's getting out creative IDIQs that allow multiple startups to bid quickly, whether it is getting published, you know, problem lists out there, like Andrea said, for the agency that don't have R&D budgets, all that would be institutionalized and I think put into place under President Garrity's uh, administration. So I hope you vote for us. You have our vote. Just get a few more and then we can make it all come together. So on that note, now that we know what you'll do as president, um, coming back to today's world, where unfortunately neither of you are president, what do you think the most pressing issue that we're facing is? Like, what is the thing that's keeping you up at night? What are you currently worried the most about when it comes to our country and the future of society? Well, I mean, I'm gonna, I can't even go that deep, but I will just go a small thing as a, as a, small business CEO, right? It's manufacturing. You know, it's it's having the ability to control our own destiny as a nation. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about onshoring of jobs, you know, and Chips Act again, good step in the right direction. But I, I we are lucky enough to manufacture in North America, but the parts come from all over the world. Um, and, you know, we're not at a point yet where we can do things like, you know, certain programs and companies have of, of you know, only having, you know, getting rid of Chinese parts from our bomb or things like that. This is really hard and really easy at the same time, right? It's really hard because it requires, you know, a joint bipartisan political will and it requires a commitment because you're not just going to snap your fingers and bring jobs back, right? It's a five to 10 year push. But it's one of those things where you look at it, you know, if if a war, major world war started tomorrow, we're not manufacturing anything. Gotenna's not. And I suspect, you know, 99% of US companies are not. If that doesn't scare everyone, right? Let alone the economic benefits if we were able to do it, right? That truly terrifies me because I look at that and there's nothing I can do as a CEO of a 61 person company. It's it's quite terrifying. And I know Andrea's got to be scared of something. <laughs> I'm scared of a lot of things. I think is the problem. I mean, I agree with Ari. I am so committed to Gotenna to you know the 61 employees that we have. By the way, I'm so excited that we just got over the 60 mark. You know, and kind of the good work that they're doing, but also the people that we're supporting in the field. And so that supply chain piece is really scary. I think on a separate note, I worry a lot about the lack of technology policy. So when we look at all the things that are happening in the software space, you know, with video, with imagery, with how quickly, you know, that has just been adopted by society. And again, like something I mentioned earlier, how we communicate, you know, like sending videos, sending pictures, we might not even text, right? Here I am, this is what I'm doing. Uh, But I worry that, you know, we don't have societal expectations about how to use that and what's appropriate. So Ari, on on the note about manufacturing, um, what what are the main things, you know, besides more founders starting companies in this space uh, and more VCs funding companies in this space? what, What are the couple of things you think, you know, we as a society, government, um, you know, people in business could do to, to help solve the, and mitigate that challenge? You know, I, I think it's a mix of, of carrot and stick, right? So one of the things that happened last administration is we ended the uh, personal consumption exemption for forced labor goods. So the way this worked, and I'm not going to give us the nuance it, it, it deserves, because uh, I wasn't our trade expert, that was someone else on the team. But, you know, you could not, of course, import forced labor goods in the U.S. unless you really, really wanted to. That was um, vastly simplifying the law, uh, but that was what the law was. And then the administration said no. And so all of a sudden, you know, the biggest companies had to go two, three, four layers down their supply chain and go, where's this stuff being made? And they did not like what they found, right? Because guess what? They were not looking because once you look, you can't unsee it, right? And But what happened was they had to clean it up. 
um, you know, that's the stick, right? And so I think on a manufacturing side, you you can do both the things, right? You can you can start saying, hey, you cannot make these things here or there, right? And we've seen that, like the Joint Strike Fighter can't make it anywhere. In fact, there was like a freak out, you know, at some point when they realized there were some alloys in there that were derivative from China, they had to get that out, you know. So there's definitely tools there you can implement. And then on this the carrot side, you know, tax breaks, incentives, innovation hubs, there's all the usual stuff there. But I think the challenge, and you're never going to make everyone happy, and there's lots of lobbying, and that's always hard, is this doesn't happen, like I said earlier, overnight. So you have to have a campaign to do it. But as we all know, right, like this is probably a five, 10-year problem. We have four-year presidency, six-year Senate, two-year con. Like keeping all the political, you know, pieces aligned long enough to do it correctly is really, really hard. But the alternative is you lose a war and you do it the hard way. And so I would much rather do it the less hard way than the part where we lose a war. But I, I think, you know, that's going to be the rub, right? You have to get enough people around that idea to create that that incentive structure on both ends. And, you know, candidly, I'm not super optimistic that's going to happen, but I, I am optimistic in that it's not like we're, we have a black hole that opened up on half the earth and we have to find the science to stop it, right? Like that would be terrifying and unsolvable. This is just a, a human problem, which can be the hardest, but at the same time, very solvable. Awesome. And so maybe to bring this all home, what are the things that keeps you the most optimistic in the face of all the challenges that, that we discussed here today? You know, I think it's really seeing the the dedication, right? The dedication of individuals, of teams, of people in the field who, you know, continue to go run against the wall because it's the right thing to do for the country or for their company or, you know, for their team. And so I do really feel like it's humbling to be out like with some of our customers and our operators who are kind of on the front lines there for everybody else. And, you know, people will come up to me with stories about how Gotenna you know, did save a life or help them or how they wish they had had it because it hadn't. Um, and those stories stay with me, you know, because I'm not an operator and I, I couldn't be an operator. So, you know, the best thing I can do is, is enable that mission. But when I see kind of, you know, that dedication, it, it does make me optimistic that like, we are going to solve problems and we are going to take care of what we need to do. I, I agree. Our, our customers are the best. I mean, they're doing the really scary hard work, right? Whether it's along the border or overseas. And and like Andrea said, getting that positive feedback and knowing like, hey, look, if our small startup can make a difference in their mission in their lives, you know, what do 100 startups do or 1,000 startups? Like that's genuinely gives me hope. Um, and at the macro level, it's like I just said is on the one hand, it's like you look at these and you're like, we'll never get the political will to do these things. But on the other these are doable things, right? You know, it's not a black hole. There's not an asteroid hurtling towards the earth, although it sounds like NASA is actually working on that, which is great. Like the, these are solvable problems, um, but we just have to decide when we're ready to solve them as a country, right? That's, which is again, both extremely uh, optimistic and extremely pessimistic all at the same time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the episode today. This was Thanks awesome. Have us back us. anytime. 